certain people as for sure are trapped in like the rat trap and they, they know that it's just they, they feel they've got to try and get the next thing whatever it is so you're tr- so trying to communicate to them why you're doing that often i would as much as it was to do with like the the desire to see spain to explore to ride the bike in places i hadn't seen and meet new people i had to try and like kind of break it down because to me not everyone seemed to understand that um desire Hey folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Mason Gravely. Um, today we're talking to Chris Atkin, who recently did a journey across southern Spain, a bike journey, kind of kind of as a way to, to brush up and, and learn better Spanish, as a way to learn kind of the history of the region, a place that he heard a lot about but never been, and thought, you know, riding a bicycle was a great medium to do it, and I couldn't agree more. It's like the perfect balance between walking and uh, and driving, you know, you still get to feel everything. You still get to stop when you want to. That's one of the most beautiful things about being on a bike is if you see a really cool roadside stand or attraction or just something that you're interested in learning a little bit more about, it is so much easier, in my opinion, just to stop for a second, explore something. You see so much more going slower. It's an amazing way to travel. It's probably my favorite way to travel. That, and if I can, I love to backpack too. So if I can't be out in the wilderness on a trail, on a bike tour, on some empty back road, is is there's nothing like it. But anyway, um, Chris's journey through Spain is uh, just filled with random stories, all kinds of stuff, all kinds of people you meet. And he's going to tell us how he did it on a budget um, because that's really important to this show is how do we make these types of experiences more frequent in our life? And one of the best ways to make it more frequent is uh, keep it keep it cheap. Um, all my adventures now are just as cheap as they were 10 years ago. So, um, that allows me to do them on a semi-regular basis and it can definitely help you as well. So, uh, if you'd like to hear more about Chris and his, his story, the, the, the book is called, it's not about the bike. Uh, there's a link in the show notes for it and I hope you enjoy this, uh, this conversation. Let's get into it. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's uh, great to be speaking to you. Oh, absolutely. Where are you coming from today? So I'm coming from um, Palo Alto in Silicon Valley in California. Oh, gosh. Now, is that is that home for you? Uh, so it has been since September. My wife had uh, taken a sabbatical. Um, we used to live in Cambridge in the UK, and uh, she's had a, she was offered a fellowship at Stanford University for a year. So we have come to sunny uh, California, which has been uh, wonderful. I was going to say, how, how are you liking California? Because I, I used to live there. I absolutely love it. Lived and worked in Yosemite for a while and in the Bay Area, did a lot there. But California is wonderful. How are you liking it? I mean, there's, there's a lot to love. Um, just every now and again, like we'll go to uh, San Francisco and the traffic will drive me up the walls. Um, <laughs> right. Just, just the, the fact that you can go on a, a week a weekend trip to Yosemite. And I mean, obviously the way that, and this is a sweeping statement, but the way that Americans view driving distances is very different to how the British would consider uh, driving distances. Like more than, I don't know, an hour is quite a long journey for us Brits. But Americans are obviously very happy to drive for many hours in order to get to an amazing place. So once you 
just tweak your mindset a bit, you suddenly realize there are an awful lot of places that we can go and explore effectively on our doorstep. Oh my gosh, that's such a good reflection. I'll be honest, I don't consider it a long trip unless it's over 10 hours of driving. (laughs) And when you start making a radius around you 10 hours, it's, it's amazing what can fit into that, especially where you live. Yeah, completely. I mean, this is the thing. We've we've had a, all of our friends um, back at home all saying, you know, wow, you've been so busy, you've done X, Y, and Z. And we're going, yeah, we have, we've really been trying to tick them off. Um, and it's it's been incredible. Yes, amazing. And what's so beautiful about I know we're kind of going on and on about California. I love it. But what's so <laughs> amazing about it is the diversity in just a few hours. You have Death Valley, one of the most extreme locations in the in the hemisphere. And then you have, within a few hours, Yosemite, Sequoia, the oldest trees, the tallest trees, and the largest trees, all within a day's drive. Lake Tahoe, you have the ocean itself. Um, you just have such a mixture. Joshua Tree, they're, they're, it's really, really vast. And to have it all there is, is pretty remarkable. Yes. I mean, when we came out, I was very much envisaging doing lots of surfing and uh, like getting and honing my skills doing that. And we've not been surfing once simply because there's been so <laughs> many other things and places to explore. And I'm going, right, summer's now arrived. I've got no reason not to be surfing. I really want to be getting out there. So, uh, yeah, it's just ridiculous when you've just got so many competing factors. Normally, if someone offered me surfing, that's number one on the list. I'm, I'm doing that. And yet somehow it's just fallen slightly by the wayside. That so, so uh, that's wild. I love how it amazing California is. Yeah. Oh my yeah. gosh, I love it. Y'all, y'all are um, eat it up. It's a wonderful place. But, <laughs> but that is not the topic of today's episode. <laughs> believe it or not, I, mean, I could talk about California forever. You know, you 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 did a pretty interesting adventure um, cycling through Spain, and you've written a book about it. But, but honestly, I want to go back before we talk about that. Where did you grow up? In, in, in and I, I assume it's the UK, just strictly based on your accent. Um, <laughs> But what did you grow up doing? Were you into these kind of things? Were you this adventurous, moving all over the place, living all over the world? Or did you have to discover it on your own? I'm always interested to hear where someone started. Yeah, so for me, I think it's all about, uh, it was something I discovered. I've always, like, I went a few like family holidays um, and things, but it was only when I went, I took a gap year by myself before I went to university and that was when I realized that, A, this was something I really, really did want to do. And I just love traveling. And I will therefore eke out as much of a living as I can the rest of the time in order to go traveling and just see so many incredible places around the world. And if that meant I needed to go by myself or uh, or, or rearrange certain things around uh, the rest of my life, then that's what it was going to take. Because for me, yeah, traveling was, um, yeah, was, was, is such a hugely important drive for me. And you said your gap year was, is what started that off? Yes. I mean, I, I suppose actually to be more accurate, maybe it was interrailing around Europe with friends um, when I was 16 and 17 years old, just around um, like we did the first time was a three week whistle stop tour through France, through Italy, uh, down to Greece. Uh, and then subsequently realizing that actually we don't have to try and do a, like a city in two days and then move on because at the end of three weeks, you need another holiday. <laughs> um, <laughs> so then get well, then uh, took a couple of uh, trips to Montenegro in sub- subsequent years, which is one of those places that a lot of people don't know a lot about, but I cannot sing its praises enough. It's just great. That is so awesome that that's, you know, just such a part of culture. And tell me this is, uh, you know, we hear about the gap year a lot, and that's not something that's really taken hold here in the States as much. There are people doing it, but not nearly as much. 
How many people are encouraged to do that? Is that just almost the standard in the UK or is it still a minority of folks uh, doing that? Oh yeah, I mean it's it's pretty widespread, but it's certainly a minority. As in you're not uh, if you if the yeah, the assumption is you're not taking a gap year. Um and when people find out that you are taking a gap year, the question is always what are you going to do with it? Um and so it's been interesting hearing like what people are doing in the year of covid effectively when they've not wanted to go to university this last year because they knew their experience wasn't going to be the same so then suddenly been a large much larger number of people who have decided they're going to take a gap year and it's kind of been enforced upon them which for me i had the benefit obviously of going no this is 100 something i'm choosing to do and i remember going to visit my friends at university in their first few weeks uh, at the university i'd got a place to go to and thinking i could 100 see myself here i'm gonna have a great time i hope uh, as I did in the end, but equally thinking, no, I do really want to go traveling first and um, see a bit of the world before I uh, before I show up at university. I think it's smart. I love it. I absolutely love it. And wh- what were some of the steps that led up to your bike trip, your your experience in southern Spain? I know you were working full time for a few years, but w- what was kind of the the reason behind what you did? So I. Basically, fundamentally, I um, so I worked for a few years at uh, Sky News in London, and then BT Sport, which is which is like the equivalent of ESPN um, for American listeners. Um, and then I've always wanted to go and visit Spain, a part of specifically southern Spain, as is a part of the world a lot of British people go to, and I'd never been. I spent five months um, after leaving BT Sport. I spent five months working in Panama's largest language school. So I was obviously honing my Spanish there a lot. And um, I really, at the end of that, I knew that my Spanish um, language skills were realistically the best they were ever likely to be. So I thought, right, this is something I really want to do is to go to Spain. And the way I'm going to be able to see Spain and see parts of Spain that um, the tourist boards don't necessarily show you, because so much of it is to do with the beach, is um, to grab a bike and... um, yeah, and basically keep costs down that way and just, yeah, explore that part of the region. So, so, so why, why that area? It was just your interest in Spanish and uh, part of what you were doing as work. Yeah, so it was, it was, it was basically, yeah, it was to do with my um, lo- yeah, love of Spanish and, um, and the desire to try and practice the language. And also just I sensed there were so many places along that coastline which are famous, to, certainly to British ears, in lots of ways. And I'd never been to any of them. Like people had always told me how amazing Valencia was, how incredible Granada was. And as somewhere that's not that far away from the UK, you're thinking, I really should try and go to these, go to these places and um, form an opinion of them for myself. And why bicycle? Why, why, not, why not walk or why not drive? <laughs> so to me, um, there's so, so many routes and things you just can't take by a car that you can obviously with a bike and you're much more exposed to your surroundings and you can see things just by necessity you have to travel much slower. So I get to see so much um, more. Walking was probably just a bit too slow for me. And I'd also, I'd cycled a lot when I was young and then I'd got back into cycling just as a commuter across London. So like 12 miles every day in the summer. And it made me fall back into back in love with riding my bike. And I just thought, yeah, this is, this is the way I want to explore um, to really like get underneath the surface of a country, this yeah, to, to me it seemed the best the best way to go. 
And so, so tell us about, you know, the route you chose, where along southern Spain you went, and then also a little bit about your budget. I knew you did this cheaply. And that's something we always love to talk about here because we try to make adventure just more accessible to people. And one of the biggest things to make it accessible is keeping costs low. Yeah, no, I completely agree. To me, there is uh, there are so many examples of, you see, of people doing these amazing things and you just think, I really want to do that. Like for me, Japan is somewhere I'm desperate to go to, but just the cost of the flight to get there, that A, Japan is an expensive country to be in, explore anyway. And you're just thinking, yeah, that's not that's going to take a fair bit of money to um, to do justice to. So for me, I want, I, yeah, I didn't have very much money at all at this point because having spent five months in Panama, I'd then, so I came to Spain. A lot of people had suggested bringing my bike uh, from the UK, which was like a, very is kind of a, a workhorse of a bike it's a boardman cyclocross um which is like five years old um to bring that with me which would have been fine for the job but uh i am terrible with diy and i was worried that my bike might uh, uh either disintegrate when i put it back together or something would happen to it like i think we when i was listening to well, one of your podcasts with greg on his mountain biking around pakistan when his like wheel was just completely ruined uh, on upon arrival and i was desperate for that not to befall me so therefore i made the decision to buy a bike in spain when i arrived and basically set off on it and uh, so that that bike was yeah cost less than 200 dollars. it had seven gears and it was just a case of yeah just trying to uh, do it as cheaply as possible a lot of banana sandwiches i was i allowed myself to try and ex- uh, explore enjoy the uh, spanish cuisine so tapas and things at dinner but uh tapas is a uh, can notoriously become quite expensive as uh, to a hungry cyclist because a few slathers of um, fish and uh, a bit of a bit of bread is not really going to cut it uh, at the end of a long day of say like 100 miles cycling no kidding man that is uh that is wild that, that, that i love it though it's, it, that's how you make it possible and and so going with the cheaper bike how, did it hold up okay what are there times <laughs> you had to figure it out and stuff breaks and you got to think on the fly yeah, there, there was quite a bit of that. I mean, the bike, <laughs> the, the, yeah, there are sometimes when you're definitely thinking, this is great, but why have I done this on quite such a budget? They're like, if I just got slightly more expensive components, this wouldn't have happened. Basically, I mean, the bike it was the bike on the website is, it's the manufacturer said it was designed for like poodling around town, like um, very lightweight, it could fit panniers, but only with very lightweight bags. Uh, and certainly not used for use on the uh, like hardcore uh, terrains I was taking it on uh, up and down the Sierra Nevada. So there are a few times, yeah, a couple of spokes broke. Uh, the derailleur at one point completely bent out of shape. Uh, and I still don't quite know how this happened. But I managed to, in the end, only I could only cycle in the highest gear, which meant that trying to cycle up any hill at all of any size, I just had to walk for a small stretch of the walk, a small stretch of the cycle which wasn't uh, ideal outside of Tarifa. So yeah, that, 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 that were certainly there were problems uh, en route. Oh my gosh. So, so tell us about setting off. What did it feel like to set off on this experience? Did you feel excited, empowered? This is going to be awesome. I'm going to learn so much. Or were you thinking, what have I done? <laughs> and, and also, how long were you planning to be out for? So my, the plan was um, a, around about six weeks, I I was I didn't wasn't I knew I wasn't going to break any like uh, records with um, my distances covered and things and I didn't really want to try and do that especially on such a, on a bike which weighed like 11 kilograms and then had another 11 kilograms worth of stuff with me 
Um, so therefore, it wasn't a, I wasn't trying to race to, to Gibraltar. And I guess it was, um, it, for me, it was, it was exciting just heading out there. And also, I didn't know how long the excitement, to be honest, would last. I hadn't done any training at all leaving Panama because I'd, if, although I'd cycled a lot in previous years, while I was in pa- Panama, I'd spent, I think, 20 minutes on a rusty road, a rusty like a fixie at one point, just having fun. Um, so I was completely unfit. And I was a bit worried about whether I would get, I don't know, three or four days in or certainly until the first like kilometer ascent and go, what am I doing? Like, this isn't what I want to do at all. So it was exciting. It was great. Um, and you, I realized how much I loved riding my bike and just the things you can see and the, the way you can. It's so easy just to stop and pull over and explore things that uh, pique your interest. But for sure, I was worried that, A, my body might break down and go, why are you putting me through this? Uh, and B, that I would just be there thinking, this actually isn't that much fun. Uh, there's a reason people do this by bus or by car. And uh, so, but yeah, in the end, that never really happens. Your body adapts very quickly. And uh, I love the experience. And I, I subsequently did a, another cycle, actually, um, around the Outer Hebrides in northwestern um, Scotland uh, with my then girlfriend. And that was incredible. Oh, I bet that was fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. So, so was there an experience or can you tell us a story about early on in this in the southern Spain trip where um, something happened that made you con- confirm that it, it was a good decision? Because it's usually something that really starts to change the trajectory of the trip, you know? Yes. I, yeah, I, I guess the so a good example is um, this wasn't necessarily that early on in the trip, but maybe... But, relatively so just outside of granada uh, i was cycling I, there's a, there's a like a, uh, a small town outside of a small city outside of granada called guadix which i knew nothing about and i was all set for it to be a pit stop uh, that has going to stay a night and then cycle on to granada the next day and it turns out to be this beautiful place and it has um the europe's largest uh, community of cave homes anywhere yeah in europe which is incredible where six thousand people live and there's now swimming pools inside them. They have all the mod cons you ever need. So I had a look around the area. I thought it was quite interesting. And then I was just cycling along. And I was thinking, you know, the, day, the heat of the day is beginning to arise. I need to get a move on because otherwise these hills are going to become particularly punishing uh, in the heat. And I saw cave museum, uh, a cave home that was open and it acted as a museum as I passed. And normally you just kind of see these things in the corner of your eye and then you just drive on. Because I was on my bike and I was going relatively slowly and i wasn't and i was able to take everything in i could see that this um the cave museum was open a man beckoned me over called me up and said and said hey, come on in that cost two euros and it was it was amazing just to see how a cave home looks inside how it's structured how they don't have any doors but to let the all the air um circulates more freely how it's basically like a complete um labyrinth inside that you very quickly lose entirely your bearings of the outside world and however big a cave home seems from the outside it's much much bigger uh inside and so it was an interesting insight which you often wouldn't get and i could so easily have overlooked um if i was going by faster transport did you know those existed before you started no not at all um i did yeah just didn't hadn't featured on my radar. Like I wanted to, obviously I planned out the route a bit and looked at vague pit stops, but I didn't want to um, plan out the route to any real degree because I liked the idea of just being surprised and constantly thinking what's around the corner. Because um, obviously there are in any 
long distance cycle parts, you're going, I've just got to grind out the miles here. This is just come on, just just keep going. But there are times when you're there thinking um, you just know that just around the corner is something that is genuinely really interesting. Like for another example is um, the enchanted city of Bonuevo, um, which is just this incredible 30 meter high uh, sandstone um, weathered fungi like shapes um, just by a beach that have, didn't have anyone there, aren't particularly famous at all, but I had to ride them all to myself. And they're just these huge giant objects that have just been shaped by thousands and thousands of years. And so that was the kind of thing, again, you'd see that you would never have picked up on particularly. We just got to explore because I was on a bike rather than any other mode of transport. I think that's one of the most beautiful things about about bike touring or about traveling in general. And, you know, setting up a, a basic structure of the trip and not over planning is a lot of times the most incredible experiences come from from just discovering what's out there and not knowing ahead of time things that aren't on the the you know if you look at the traveling travelers bureau or, or brochure to spain those cave dwellings probably wouldn't be on there it's the first list that is and they're somewhere in someone's list but when you're on a bike you don't miss anything um what, what, what did people think about your trip the people that knew you did you did they think you were crazy did they think he's lost his mind what what, what were what were some of the conversations you were hearing yeah, for sure. There was a lot of that. Um, <laughs> I mean, so my my now wife is uh, is amazing and um, is great. And so therefore, when I told everyone that I was going to go and leave her behind while I worked in Panama for five months, um, while she finished a postgraduate course, everyone thought I was crazy. And then to them, the idea of then going to Spain within like, I don't know, t- being back in the UK for two days and then going to Spain, uh, everyone was there going, why are you doing this? Like, there, there are perfectly good ways to explore Spain and you can go on a nice holiday sometime. Why are you doing this? Uh, it makes no sense. Um, but I knew that a lot of people wouldn't get that. It's, there is a, a certain people as for sure are trapped in like the rat trap and they, they know that it's just, they, they feel they've got to try and get the next thing, whatever it is. So you're tr- so trying to communicate to them why you're doing that. Often I would, as much as it was to do with like the, the desire to see Spain, to explore, to ride the bike in places I hadn't seen and meet new people, I had to try and like kind of break it down because to me, not everyone seemed to understand that um, desire and the fact that you get the air in your, the air in your hair and stuff um, when you're cycling. I used the um, motivating factor of practicing my Spanish to get most people to um, come around to the idea, at least, of why I was traveling to Spain and traveling around. Were you able to practice your Spanish enough to, to get better? Yes. No, definitely. There was one bit in particular where, I mean, when you're cycling, you spend a lot of time, obviously, with your own thoughts. Uh, and as much as I can try and practice my own thoughts in Spanish, it's not quite the same as having uh, regular conversations. Um, but with some hosts, particularly, I was able to speak quite a bit of Spanish. And I remember being in one hostel um, where I was like trying to make the bed with the sheets they'd given me. And I was fighting with one of the corners of the um, of the bed sheets to squeeze it around. And I realized I was having a conversation in Spanish with an Argentinian who was also in, in the dorm. And I, the fact that I was having this conversation almost almost without thinking about it, and the fact that he knew what was going on, I was contributing well, and we were having like a, a proper dialogue, and I wasn't even concentrating fully, I realized that was a sign that, yes, I really was far more fluent than I'd ever been. And so that was... So that was really, that was great because a lot of the time when you're learning a language, 
it does feel incredibly frustrating that you just cannot quite express yourself as eloquently as you would like. You had plenty of time to think about uh, how to be better and to practice in your head as you as you rode around between conversations, I'm sure. Yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. There's a lot of verb conjugations you're practicing going, right, come on, they can't happen again. What am I going to, what, how would I say it next time? And I'd like, um, in terms of Spanish as well, there's a lot of times you're trying to say, can I help you? The way the verbs work means that you end up saying, can you help me when you see someone in need? And so I'm, I was always very careful to try and go, hang on a minute. Someone's struggling. What I don't need to ask for is for them to help me now um, when you're just trying to offer some help. So, yeah. That is hilarious. T- tell us another story. I, I know you, you wrote the book and there's so much, you know, you're probably not able to share. But w- what was another hidden gem that you found along the coast? Something you weren't expecting? I know I know the cave dwellings was probably, I mean, the best example of that. That is wild. I, I didn't expect you to say that. But was there anything else that just you discovered or, or a moment or a, or a day that was just spectacular that you'll never forget? Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. Uh, yeah, I mean, so, I mean, for me, uh, for any... For, uh, Big cycling fans, uh, I would say the Sierra de Grazalema was my personal cycling nirvana. I mean, it, so it's it wasn't surprising when I found out subsequently that it was used for the Vuelta a España, which is one of uh, the big um, European tours uh, of cycling. Um, but the area there is just incredible. It's I'm a um, I love cycling, but equally when it comes to these like kilometer ascents. They're hard work. Um, like there was one t- one day when I was cycling up to Ronda from the coast. So I cycled um, away from the shore and took up and, and went past um, mountain goats en route. And that was incredible. You don't see that on many uh, on many cycles. Um, but for me, yes, the Sierra Grazalema is this area just um, southwest of Ronda. And it's just got these rolling hills that are gorgeous, covered by lots of oak trees. And then you kind of descend onto this wide open plain. Um, that for me was just one of those places where I'd, there was almost no traffic. The roads were relatively um, sheltered by shade. There was, um, and you just could just throw around your bike and have a great time. Uh, so I'd recommend anyone going there if they get the opportunity. And again, the Sierra de Grazalema, uh, Sierra de Grazalema was somewhere I'd never heard of. So um, yeah, it's just that that was an ex, that was an exciting point for me. Was there a was there a place on the trip that that was a low point or a time that you maybe felt? you couldn't continue or you didn't know if you could or or something that was you know underwhelming even yeah well i had a um issue when i i was basically hoping to get from i was having had the highs of sierra de grazalema i was then hoping to get all the way down to tarifa which is the southernmost point of mainland europe by the end of that day so which is i think about like 150 kilometers or so so that was the biggest that was the longest day i was trying to achieve and i got about two thirds of the way down and I got my first puncture of the trip, um, which, which wasn't the end of the world, I thought. And I looked down to uh, try and take off the tire and realized because my bike was quite so um, budget, <laughs> it didn't have a quick release lever. And so when I looked down, I saw uh, just a bolt and a screw. Uh, I realized it was a bit of a problem because it was um, because I didn't have a spanner. So at that point, you're then having to go around the local area, which is this tiny, tiny town, 
where there, it was a Saturday, it was late on a Saturday afternoon, almost nowhere was open, and I'm having to go around trying to ask like the people in pubs saying, "Do you have a spanner?" And a spanner in Spanish is una llave, which is effectively a key. Everyone's there looking at you, thinking you're a bit strange. And then I just couldn't get the I couldn't get the um, the spanner to work. And eventually, like eventually, I managed to get the 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 tire off and get the new inner tube on. But at that point, I knew I couldn't travel the rest of the journey. But I um, because nightfall was falling, and yeah, it was it was it was far too long to travel on a bike that was already damaged because of the derailleur and uh, wasn't working. So I had to spend the night in uh, this very small town, feeling a bit like the Virgin Mary, looking for a bed to stay in. <laughs> and ends up in a <laughs> ends up in a like in a room above a bar, which was from like some kind of horror movie. It was just like there were bloods on the sheets, it was holes all in the sink, and you're there thinking, oh, this is this is not quite the plan of this idyllic end to an idyllic day. But it was um, the next day. It, I yeah, I got through it. Um, I did think about getting the bus the next day, but because it was Sunday, obviously there were no buses in Spain. Spain shuts down almost completely on Sunday. So, um, yeah, it was a case of going very slowly and limping towards the next place I could try and get my bike fixed. You know, that's just, a, you know, a bad day. That can happen anywhere, and it's and it's going to happen anywhere you go. You're, there's, things are just not going to go your way at some point of any adventure. Was was the journey across southern Spain, you know, because something we talk about a lot on the show is, is when you look at maps and you obsess, not obsess, but when you prepare for a trip and you have a vision in your mind of what a place looks like, versus how it actually is and how the people are, was it surprising to you? To British people, when you look at that part of the world, everything is just beaches, it's British expatriates, um, all having exposed themselves to too much sun, um, (laughs) who are not necessarily of my demographic at all. So in their 50s and 60s, they've gone there to retire. Um, There's some parts of it which are, there are some resorts which were huge in the, like the 60s and 70s and are um, at the time where like all the Hollywood stars went to but now kind of faded and are, have lost their luster. And so I was aware that I, was, I, I, was, I wanted to see those places, but I was hoping there would be more to, to southern Spain than that. And there was. I mean, there was so much more. Just the fact that, yeah, I was able to find all these little gems of places and all the, and all the places that, uh, the magazines said, oh, you know, this is the best beach in Spain. This is the greatest uh, place to see X or whatever. This is the greatest view. Like, there are so many places that you realize that further along the coast, you think, if all the, if all the tourists who were there and were fighting for space on the beach knew about there's an entire, like, four or five kilometer stretch of sand with no one on and all the amenities you could really want, why are you not spreading out more? Why are you not seeing this incredible, gorgeous beach or this incredible um, panoramic vista? So that and also the variety as well was something that really I noticed. Just you've got the tiny little the tiny little villages, beautiful orchards of olive trees and oranges and um yeah, and and, and I mean this and also that and you've got the mountains as well, just the there's some of the ones that are just incredibly bare and dry, and other ones which are yeah, like the Sierra Nevadas where which are just uh, the peaks in the Sierra Nevada, which are huge, um, well relatively to me at least. <laughs> It, it does remind me that that coastline does remind me of the California coast. I know we were just talking about that, but just I've never been. But just based on what I know about it and based on what I've seen, d- did you get that sense at all? Um, which part are you talking about? Like Southern Californian coast? Uh, yeah, like right around uh, like Big Sur and some of that yeah. rocky shoreline that's, that's yes. really beautiful and mountainous. 
Yes, I do. Yes, I see what you mean. I thought, I thought you meant in terms of the retired expats. Um, yes, no, for sure. No, no, there, no, there is. Lots of yeah, British sure. retired expats in Southern <laughs> California. Yeah. yeah. Uh, um, so, no, it is, yeah, very similar. There is, um, there are certain parts of it which, yeah, the trees are fairly gnarled. Yeah, and, and there are, yeah, and the beautiful spots and, yeah, the, the rocky, um, the granite and, uh, yeah, and also the, the greenery, I mean, is, is similar. You can, you can tell in the way the, the trees are green, but a lot of the other landscape is often not simply because of the, like the, the lack of water and like, the, the drought we're experiencing in California now. Yeah, yeah, always an issue, always an issue in that region. I know this a huge part of this journey was also learning about the region's history. How much of it did you know at the time and, and how much did you learn? I went into it with open eyes. My, I mean, there was, I was never intending to write a book about the trip. So for me, it was just a case of seeing what I found and um, in, enjoying it and practicing my Spanish. And then it was as I went along and met various um, interesting characters and, uh, and discovered more about the places. And you think, actually, there's something in this. So for me, I think the thing that shocked me the most was the fact that in January 1966, the US accidentally dropped four hydrogen bombs on uh, the Spanish coastline, uh, each of which was 70 times more powerful than um, the bomb that um, exploded in uh, Hiroshima. Did they explode? So the one of them didn't. Two of them exploded, but they had their fail, the fail-safes worked. So therefore, there was significant plutonium contamination in the, in the surrounding area. And the fourth bomb, they, no one knew where it landed. It, was, it, it, it uh, led to the biggest maritime search ever had happened at this point. And it took them several months, I think, to find exactly where the bomb was. And it lands out in, it lands out in the sea. where they, uh, and, and at this point, you've got the US are trying to desperately downplay the fact that they just cause this huge nuclear fallout um, on the part of Spain. Uh, they're also terrified that the Soviet Union are going to find these, um, are going to, is going to find the missing bomb and take all the Cold War secrets. You've got General Franco, who's a Spanish leader, trying to get the secrets for himself. So the, one of the things the US did, they got their ambassador to Spain and Spain's tourism minister to go and swim in the sea to basically to say, hey, look, there's nothing to see here. It's all fine. There's not, the water's not dangerous. Everyone come and have a nice holiday. When actually the, air, the sea was like full of plutonium and both men exposed themselves to really bad radiation. As it was, both men lived until they were like 89, I think, and 91 years old. But lots of the people who did clear up the contaminated area did die terribly premature deaths. And it was basically a whole part of the history that the US for a long time has basically tried to forget about and like sweep under the carpet. When considering how awful it is, it, yes, it's, it's surprising. And it, what's amazing about it is that it's one of, it was one of four incidents that happened uh, as part of Operation Chrome Dome, where the US were just constantly flying atomic bombs over Europe to make sure they could preempt any, uh, any attack from the Soviet Union during the Cold War. And it was only when, in, I think a few years later, when some more uh, atomic bombs exploded in Greenland that they eventually realized that maybe the, um, the risk wasn't worth the potential benefit of having uh, weapons constantly on, on call. No way. The things you learn when you set out on an adventure. <laughs> My goodness. That, yeah. So, so what, what eventually compelled you to write the book? And I'd love to hear more about the book, but you said you set out not wanting to. Was just this culmination of, of discoveries and of things you've 
essentially weren't expecting to find. Yes, effectively. Yeah, I just there were. I mean, whether it was or just lots of small incidents, um, like for example, meeting my Airbnb host and she just casually mentioning that um, she had strangled the last guest she had had to stay. <laughs> what? And, and, you're, and you're there thinking, what, what am I supposed to do with this information? Like, and she, it was clear that she wanted me to kind of condone her behavior. But you're there thinking, and you obviously don't want to, like you're staying in her house. You don't want to um, chastise her or be rude. But it's, you're there in this awkward situation trying to be, think, yeah, oh, yeah, no, that's fine. I, yeah, I would, I would do the same. And she was like a, a very nice middle-aged woman. Um, but it just, and yeah, so just things like that. And then with the history as well and the, and just the, the terrain I was traveling through and the experience of doing it on such an inappropriate bike. Yeah, it just made me think there's a lot of uh, different aspects of this which people could enjoy reading about. That, that sounds like an incredible story. I mean, along with that, what should people expect when reading the book? Uh, because, you know, that story alone makes you want to check it out. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I guess it's, so the book's title is Just As Well, It's Not About the Bike. And it's, and it's obviously, it's a pun on Lance Armstrong's uh, first autobiography. But basically it's because it's not really, sure, I cycled around Spain, but it's not about the bike. And it's just as well because of its um, limited nature. But um, yeah, it's it's basically just an insight into Spain with a it's a bit of a travel log, but also just picking out just lots of bits of history, which I think a lot of people will find interesting and uh, humorous. I mean, going back to the um, going going back to the incident with the nuclear bombs, like when the U.S. found the um, bomb, they managed to drop it again and then lost it for a subsequent like sixteen days. Like it's amazing to think there's the the things that kind of went wrong at that point. And there's all kinds of different stories uh, from across history, which kind of arose whilst on the trip. Unbelievable. What, what do you think the biggest lesson is that you learned on the trip, maybe about yourself or about the world or about people? What, what, what is something that you take with you today that you learned from that experience? Uh, I mean, so I'd done quite a bit of traveling by myself before. So I knew that I could do it. I mean, it was only the traveling, if not the cycling. I think what was something that I like to try and remind myself is I stayed in hostels quite a bit. I stayed in Airbnbs quite a bit. And the experience I had from different uh, people in uh, Airbnbs was that some people treated you very much like just a source of income, which obviously I wasn't bringing in very much. And so therefore they would kind of be a bit brusque and um, short and kind of give you the key, show you the keys, show, uh, show you the Wi-Fi code and then not speak to you at all. Other people just want to talk to you all the time. And I think it's just the case of making the effort to try and chat a bit uh, and to be warm to other people and not just uh, and, and just and just engage. I think is it's very easy, I think, for us all to get caught up. And I'm, I'm certainly very guilty of it, thinking I'm very busy. I've got lots of things on. Sure, I'll do what I need to do and then I'll carry on with the things I'm doing in life. And it was just it was a good reminder of the benefits I felt when someone just thought, sure, I don't necessarily I'm not going to give up my evening to talk to Chris. But it's nice just to have like a little bit of repartee about the city, what, what they liked about Spain, what they didn't like about the local area, um, any recommendations, all that kind of thing. Uh, so that was that was something I definitely would take away with um, when advising other people um, about where to travel and how to travel. Wonderful lesson to keep in mind. To close, wh where can people find the book? And also, what do you have planned next? So, yeah, so you can find the book on my website, uh, chrisatkinonline.com, uh, on Amazon, on Barnes & Noble, all the, all the major um, 
but retailers should be should be there. Um, and then uh, you can follow me on uh, Twitter at Chris Jatt, which is also my Instagram. That's Chris J A T. And then in terms of what's next, so while I've been in California, I've been um, borrowing my landlord's bike, and I've it's which is very kind of him to let me have it. But I am itching to uh, get out properly on a on a proper bike again, um, which I, which actually fits me. Um, so quite what's next, I don't know. Obviously here we're quite close to Mexico, and so I'm thinking you know there is a huge part. Of, I mean Mexico is such a huge country; it's a big distance to cover. But is there something there maybe? Um, otherwise. Central and Eastern Europe, there is just so much there that I would like to explore. I've, I've been a bit before, but just, yeah, there's there's so many things to see. And I've got so many ideas. It's just a case of trying to fit them all in. Um, also as well, my wife is uh, very jealous of my trip and has basically said she's never going to let me uh, go any of these places cycling by myself again. So trying <laughs> to find time where we can fit in to go together to these uh, places is uh, is the tricky thing. I don't blame her. I mean, that sounds like, <laughs> it sounds like such an incredibly fun trip in Spain, a place that I have not explored that I would absolutely love to. And I, I've been looking at the map as you talk, and I'm just discovering things on this map. Like, oh, I didn't realize there was a mountain range there or there or there. And it's it's got me itching, man. It, 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 there's so much to do. It's a little frustrating how much there is to do, especially when you live in a place that uh, that has so much to offer, it's like, how do you even begin to choose? But the important thing is just to do something. Yes, yeah, exactly. I mean, like, just the, that's the thing. Like, there's so much in the US alone. You're thinking, what just, yeah, how do you, it's difficult trying to stop myself to spend the entire time just driving from place to place. And you're thinking like, I don't want to leave America having not gone to like Yellowstone and all these other amazing right. places. You're thinking, I'm, I'm going to struggle to fit them all in and just, yeah. And anyway, so. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to accept that I'm not going to make it to everywhere, try as I might. <laughs> I, I tell you what, you know, as, as a lifelong American and as a lifelong pursuit to see this country, I've seen tons of it. But, you know, you, there's still so many frontiers I, I wanted to see more of or haven't yet seen, excluding Alaska, places like that, and even Hawaii. It's like you just got to take what you can get, you know. Uh, and not overlooking where it is you are right now, because that is somewhere. I always tell people, you know, where you are is somebody's exotic location. Exactly where you are is where people have had life-changing moments in travel in your town. You just don't know it because you're from there. Anyway, we I know we could talk about that forever, but hey, thank you so much for joining. Is there anything else you'd like to share with listeners before we go? Any other stories or anything? Uh, no, I think, you know, that's hopefully I've given them a bit of a flavor. Um, there are plenty more in there, um, but I suspect they would probably take up uh, far longer than we have <laughs> to, to share. So, uh, yeah, I will leave it there for now. But, uh, yeah, thanks for listening. All right. Yep. All right. Talk soon. Okay. Thanks, Kit. First of all, thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun.